I want to give you guys a hearty welcome for those who are joining us for the first time today. Maybe you're visiting family. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Uh, this is your first time, or uh, if you're among a first uh, or among some early visits with us, um, we hope that you feel part. Or hope that you feel welcome. Hope that you uh, get connected to some folks and begin to feel part of us. Should the Lord lead you to be part of us, um, but if you're visiting family this morning, just. Uh, I want to say welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, it's a treat to spend time with you this morning. Uh, I'm thankful that Christmas is a yearly event. I've um, I've been thinking on the, the the fact that we do Advent every uh, December, um, revisiting old stories, old passages that we may have heard and may have read all our lives, or may have heard over and over and over again. The thing that I've enjoyed is that they can't really be exhausted. Uh, the Jewish calendar was was filled with holidays and festivals and remembrances, and I think that's a great thing because you end up connecting to something that you need to regularly connect to, that you need to regularly remember. And I think for us, we shouldn't be any further than six months away from either the last Christmas or the next one coming up so that we can hold on to, really hold on to what took place 2,000 years ago when God the Father sent God the Son, and he took on flesh. So I hope this morning that um, you have a, a fresh encounter with what may be, may be an old story for you. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times. Um, and I hope that you find this morning that it truly can't be exhausted. Uh, let me pray, and we'll continue on with our morning. Lord, this morning, uh, I want to just say, uh, in front of friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ and church family, I just want to say thank you for giving us um, the privilege and the opportunity and the joy of peering into this story, of uh, examining it this morning, really uh, with a time that's really pretty much distraction-free where we can just sit and soak in it. Lord, I'm thankful for your word that gives us such uh, insight that is beyond just some data, uh, but is actually a living instrument, a thing that you are, um, that you use, um, that you have provided for us to give us access to you as a being. What a wonderful thing, this supernatural thing that sits in our laps and our hands and our, on this podium right now. Lord, I, am, I just want to say thank you. Thank you that you've given us this word in our language that we can read it. Thank you for English teachers that help us break down parts of speech and simple things like that so that we can make sense of what you have done for us in the person and work of Christ. Lord, I'm thankful too for the role of the Holy Spirit in helping sort those things out and helping us connect those truths to our lives so that we can walk in what we're hearing. Lord, I pray for his work this morning. I pray that it will be surgical. I pray that if it's somebody that's visiting for the first time this morning, uh, that may not even know you, uh, may have so, so, maybe sort of an awareness about you, it may not be in a relationship with you, that the Holy Spirit will uh, open the eyes of hearts, uh, remove blinders uh, from eyes, uh, remove scales, uh, it will soften the heart to the greatness of the story and the greatness of a good God behind it. I pray for the Holy Spirit this morning that he will work with those who may be here this morning, might be skeptical and might be just tired of just a, a Christian story, this religious concept. Lord, I pray that this just honest consideration of an ancient story will be something that the Holy Spirit uses to quicken and to renew and to bring blessedness and joy to someone who's struggling with doubt. Lord, I pray that this, this time that we spend together will be something that uh, will encourage us as we find, uh, as we live the roller coaster of uh, disappointment, uh, frustration, discouragement with others or with ourselves or with life in general and things that, that we may struggle with, that we can hold on to something that's static and real, that's solid, and it'll help us brave those seasons. Lord, I need that this morning, and I pray that the people in this room that need that as well will be nourished and fed, encouraged and equipped. 
Lord, also this morning, I just want to pray for another church in our community. I'm thankful for the opportunity to lift up another church and another pastor. Pray for Chet Haney this morning in Highland Terrace Baptist Church. And just, Lord, I pray that they are enjoying you well this season. I pray that you are blessing Chet and his marriage and his family, that it is overflowing, his study is overflowing into the pulpit, and that you will use him this morning to equip the saints. Lord, we turn this time over to you, and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Luke. Our mornings together, Sunday mornings, are saturated with God's Word. We really don't have anything else to work with, and I really don't want anything else to work with. I, I don't um, have any uh, interesting stories to tell or um, tear-jerking emails to share or anything like that. Um, I, I really have this book, and I've been given the assignment, the task, and the job of, of, of really bathing in it this week to prepare for this time together. So we're going to use God's Word this morning. We're going to peer into the person of God through his word. Uh, I'm going to read a story uh, that, that has already been shared this morning. I'm going to read it again because I really want us to be saturated in it. We're going to spend a few minutes unpacking a portion of this passage and then together hopefully being better at God love, be better at loving God. That's who this book was written to, the book of Luke. If you've turned there. You can look a few pages, maybe even just a page before where I want you to start in chapter 2. Where chapter 1 begins, it's written to a guy named Theophilus. If you break down that name, Theophilus, we don't know if that's a real dude, real Greek guy. Sounds kind of Greek, Roman guy, I don't know. It could be, though. It's really neat how the name breaks down into lover of God. This book beautifully connects to those who love God and want to be better at loving God. So that's, where, um, that's our approach this morning. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registra registra registration. I'm already looking at Quirinius, which is a uh, tongue, tongue twister. This was the first registra registration. All right, seriously. <laughs> Let's hope the rest of this goes better than this is going. When Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see the, this thing that's happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The last few weeks, really the, the entire month of, of December, we've been considering different characters in the book of Luke to acquaint us with really God, to help us peer into the person of God. Those characters, if you've been here over the course of the month, you know that we've spent some time with Mary for the first couple of weeks. 
And then last week, we spent time with a guy named Zechariah. We've tried in some ways to sort of feel their feelings, to see their sights, to hear the things that they're hearing, to sort of make sense of what they're seeing, and specifically who they're seeing. We're making the point right now, and we're going to do it again this morning. We're making the point not to model ourselves after Mary. That's not the point of the passage. That's not what helps with God, God love. Not to model ourselves after a guy named Zachariah. Not to model ourselves after some shepherds. But to see what they're seeing so that we can enjoy the God they're enjoying. There's a difference. Man, that's been our goal this month. And I hope it's something we accomplished this morning trying to grow in our God love as fellow Theophilus or Theophili. I don't know how you'd say that. In our account today, as I've looked into this passage and planned ahead for this morning, I've been looking for the next character. It's been Mary and Zachariah so far, and there are some characters in this passage. We've got Caesar Augustus, okay, the Caesar Augustus. It's a, the emperor of the Roman Empire. Um, we've got Quirinius, tongue-twisting name. We've got really nothing from Quirinius to work with. We've got a decree from Caesar, but we don't really even have the content of the decree. We know what was being decreed, but that's not the point that we're going to consider this morning. We've got nothing from Quirinius, so there's nothing, no data there to work with, no words. We've got Joseph. We could kind of look, look at Joseph and study Joseph and imagine what he must have been feeling and thinking, but we've got no words from Joseph. He's just silent through this entire narrative that I just shared. We've got Mary. May we look at Mary again and consider Mary. She's pondering and thinking on things and treasuring up some things. We have some verbs that are attributed to her, but we don't have her really saying anything. There's nothing really to work with beyond her pondering and treasuring. We have the shepherds. Maybe the shepherds would give us some insight, but really we don't have much more from the shepherds than, hey, let's go see what's been told or what's been shared with us. Not a lot of information to work with there. But then we've got the angels. The angels give us something to work with. The angels give us some words. There's some dialogue there. There's a message that I think we can spend the morning uh, peering into and peering through to consider the God that they're enjoying and the news specifically that they're declaring. We have these specific words from the angel. First, likely... Gabriel, an angel of the Lord. Gabriel is the angel that's been sort of doing the, the legwork so far in the book of Luke. So he's likely the angel involved right here. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That's the message from, likely, Gabriel. And then Gabriel is joined by a multitude, a host of angels who share this message. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When an angel would show up in a different setting, one setting or another, there's a term for this called an angelophany. And oftentimes, if you've been reading in Luke ahead of time, or if you've been here the last few weeks, you may have noticed there's sort of a pattern. When an angel shows up, people get really scared. <laughs> Zechariah is in the temple, and an angel shows up, and man, he is scared. Actually, the words that are used, it says, he was troubled and fear fell on him. I can only imagine. He's in there by himself, and then an angel appears. It's the first part of the pattern. The angel shows up. The second part is they get really scared. The third part, nearly every time, at least every time that I can see, is the angel says, hey, don't be afraid. And then the fourth part is a message along with a sign. We followed through with that sort of pattern with Zechariah, and the encouragement was don't be afraid. There's going to be some good news, and that good news is Elizabeth is going to conceive, and that actually is the sign as well. The good news and the sign together is the conception of his wife after a long time of being barren. The same pattern happens with Mary. The, the passage tells us when Gabriel appears to Mary that she's greatly troubled. 
Probably an understatement. And the angel responds, don't be afraid. And then he shares a sign. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here we are on a dark hillside, a Judean hillside, where the same thing happens. An angel shows up. It's likely the shepherd's field just outside Bethlehem, only a couple miles from Bethlehem, in fact. An angel appears, and the shepherds are filled with great fear. I love what the King James Version says. It says they were sore afraid. Isn't that good when somebody's sore afraid? You know, they were like trying to, they're, they're thinking through their CPR steps. And then the words from the angel, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. And then the sign, a sign for you will be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The plan for this morning, just to kind of give you a map, I like to give folks a map, uh, not every Sunday, but usually, to kind of give you a place to, to dive back in in case your mind wanders. If you're thinking about stuffing or, uh, in our case, a, a turkey that's brining or gumbo that I'm making right after worship, in case your mind wanders, like mine might, hopefully it won't in the next few minutes, but yours might, I want to give you a map. I want to help you sort of know where we are. Okay, here's the plan for the morning. It's really going to have three parts. We're going to consider the angel's message specifically. Uh, Well, first, we're going to consider what is the good news that the angels are sharing, specifically the angel first, likely Gabriel. Then we're going to consider together the sign. And lastly, we're going to consider the audience, the peculiar audience of some shepherds on a Judean hillside. I want to encourage you, too, to have Genesis chapters 3 and 4 on speed dial. Okay, In other words, just have them ready. It's pretty handy because it's like right at the beginning of the Bible anyway. So, but just know that I want you to be at a couple different points in the morning. We're going to look back at Genesis 3 and 4. Okay. Let's start with a message from an angel of the Lord. I told you the word was going to, going to be saturated with the word this morning because this, this is our reference. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you, here's the good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's a lot to work with in that one statement. Okay, and I think some of it's going to be unpacked over the morning. But what I want to do first to sort of acquaint us with the good news is we're going to spend time considering the three names that are shared in this, in this good news. There are three names that are shared here, and they are Savior, Christ, and Lord. Now, Lord was a common term. It wasn't used of, uh, um, I mean, it was used of people often. Anytime someone was in a position of authority in ancient Roman context, in the ancient Roman um, Empire context, ancient Israel, if someone referred to someone as Lord, they might be referring to their boss. Wives might refer to their husbands as Lord. It's just a position of authority. You don't have to go overboard with that and take that too far. But in this case, he is referenced. This good news comes as this child that's been born is the Lord. A little small word like the may not mean much, but it's called a definite article for the English folks in here. I do enjoy English, and I enjoy what it tells us. The definite article in front of that word Lord tells us that this child that's been born is not an authority, There's not one authority among many, but the declaration from the angels is that this is the Lord. This is the authority that has been born, the ultimate authority. We're working with the easiest first regarding the Lord. Now let's move backwards and pick up the Savior. This term Savior was commonly used to refer to Caesar Augustus. Man, I'm telling you, it's amazing when you climb into the context of these stories and you try and think their thinks and see their seas and you really think about their context, you realize they're saturated in the Roman Empire with a message about their emperor and a theme and a political sort of conversation that has to do with Caesar Augustus. Christ was born into that context. This news comes into that context. Listen to this thing I found, this ancient writing uh, it's, a, it's sort of in a Roman, it's a Roman announcement about a birth to, birthday celebration for Caesar, Caesar Augustus. 
listen to the language of this. Listen to a word that's used for Caesar Augustus and listen to some of the adjectives that flow out of this little excerpt. It's got sort of ancient flowery language, so listen along. Do the best you can. Whereas the providence which divinely ordered our lives and created with zeal and munificence the most perfect good for our lives by producing Augustus. For the benefaction of mankind sending us and those after us a Savior. This is a, like a, 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 a thing that's distributed among the Roman Empire about celebrating Caesar Augustus' birthday. They're calling him a Savior. And here's why they call him a savior. This, this, this next little excerpt gives you an insight. Who put an end to war and established all things. They believe that Caesar brought a peace that was the first type, the first piece of its kind that the world had seen ever. Like covering an empire, a large portion of the world. And they attributed it to this guy and they called him a savior. Who for the benefaction of mankind, sending us and those after us, a savior who put an end to war and established all things. And whereas Caesar, when he appeared, exceeded the hopes of all who had anticipated good tidings. And whereas the birthday of the God marked for the world the beginning of good tidings through his coming. It sounds like a Christmas carol. Complete with good tidings. I mean, this is the context that Jesus was born into. This is the context where this message was shared on a Judean hillside. A context that was a Roman province. A place that would have been well acquainted with this concept and this thought about Caesar Augustus. Man, Luke is making quite a statement by just writing this account and sharing it with a Greek guy named Theophilus. Don't miss that. Or a Roman guy, I should say, with a Greek name, named Theophilus. See, I want you to consider this. Jesus' birth calls into question, in their context, the emperor's status as savior. And the supposed peace, and I use air quotes around peace, of Augustus. It's hard to imagine that Theophilus wouldn't have gotten the point that's being made here. Luke is taking, in their context, well-known images and well-known words about their current emperor, and he's seizing them and using them for the birth of this child. Man, don't miss that. Don't miss that. See, there's Hellenistic good news. Hellenism is a word that's that's sort of a reference, a parking place for ancient Roman and Greek thought. There's Hellenistic good news, and that's Caesar Augustus, and that's worldwide peace, or emperor-wide peace, empire-wide peace. There's Hellenistic good news, and then there's cosmic good news. And that's what this angel specifically brings these shepherds at this point, is cosmic good news. Angel-declaring, fear-inducing, life-giving good news. That's the nature of this message, a cosmic Savior has been born. He'll win peace, not with neighboring peoples through war. And he'll win peace, not with neighboring clans and tribes. He's going to win peace between God and man. A far more difficult accomplishment. And a far more important accomplishment. And a far more real peace. Man, think on that for a minute. This is some serious good news. He's going to win peace, not with the neighbors, but with their creator. Whatever peace Augustus may have won, it was earthly and temporal. Anybody ever been to Rome? You know what the Roman Forum looks like? Here's a little hint. Ruins. Ruins. That's the context this news comes to. A Savior has born that's going to be bringing peace that will last forever. That's a peace that's far better than peace with your neighbors won through war. Man, that's good. That's a good name. The Lord was good. I, I can identify with the authority as in the only authority. I enjoy that. But when we talk Savior 
and we're talking about this kind of Savior and this kind of peace, mm, that's a good name. That's a good name. Now let's deal with the third name, Christ. This name actually means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. The concept of Messiah would have been very well developed in their time. In fact, there were people that were looking for the Messiah. There's one point in the book of John where uh, some of the disciples come to the other disciples and say, hey, we found the Messiah. It's part of their conversation in an ancient Jewish context where they're looking for the Messiah. A very well-developed concept after the exiles, after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles especially. Someone who's going to deliver God's people from oppressors would have been a very... um, um, relevant conversation as they're sitting under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire. Okay, lots has happened between the Testaments, if you want to read, that, read about that context. Lots has happened where you could appreciate that the conversation about a Messiah, someone who would liberate them from the heavy hand of Rome, would be well entertained. Especially after the exiles, this concept of Messiah was developed. But it goes all the way back to the time of the Exodus as well where a Messiah-like figure, an anointed one, led God's people out of bondage to an oppressor, and specifically Egypt. But that's not where it begins. That's not the oldest relationship or the oldest concept behind the concept of Messiah. Turn to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Okay, we've gathered up a couple of names so far. The Lord. We've gathered up Savior. We're getting some sense of the importance of this declaration on this, this, this news on this Judean hillside. And now we're peering into the use of this word Christ. Genesis chapter 3 is just a, a chapter really you should be well acquainted with. It's a story of the fall of man. I believe, uh, uh, I believe in a very literal Adam and Eve, and I believe in a very literal fall. I believe this is a literal account. It's not figurative. I don't believe it's metaphorical. I believe this actually went down with a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. Okay, let me start there. Okay, they sinned. They, they transgressed. God's, God really, he didn't have ten commandments. There's really only one commandment at that point. And they just showed right off the bat that man couldn't even adhere to one commandment. Okay, now... Listen to the consequences of this, um, the fall of man for the serpent specifically. Listen to this passage beginning in verse 14. This is the consequences for the serpent of the sin of man. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, okay, because you've fooled Eve into taking of the fruit, and Eve fooled Adam, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I don't know if that's why most women don't don't like snakes, but maybe so. And between your offspring and her offspring. That's the key phrase I want you to to connect to this morning. Between Between your offspring and her offspring... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, this is the first reference in our Bible to someone coming. Someone's going to come and someone's going to fix this problem. This offspring of Eve is going to do something to the offspring of the serpent. Okay, this is the earliest reference in our Bible to someone coming. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That he and his are who I want you to key on for the next couple of minutes. Now, turn the page over to chapter 4 of Genesis. This is the, the, the account of the first birth. Okay? Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That phrase has always cracked me up. Now, it just kind of, just the declaration. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's funny, but it's insightful as well. Okay, and here's how it's insightful. There's a hint there where she's already leaning in the direction that God did something here. God gave me a man-child here. 
And this man-child, with God's help, there's some sense right off the bat that Eve is already expecting the anointed one. That Eve is already expecting the Messiah. The, the Hebrew is Hebrew's difficult, um, it, it, you, as you might imagine. And the Hebrew in this passage is so simplistic that there are some who have... Uh, and I say it's difficult, it's simplistic. Uh, it, the, the, the words and their, their order, um, that's where things get difficult because the words themselves are not difficult. But the word order here may also very reasonably be translated, I have gotten the God-man. Okay, no reference to help in there. I've gotten the God-man. There's some sense from the very first delivery of the very first child in human existence that Eve herself is expecting that maybe I'm going to give birth to this anointed one and this Messiah that's going to fix this mess that we made a few days ago or however long ago it was when we were evicted from the garden. Man, maybe I'm going to give birth to this child. This first child is going to be the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent and his offspring. Maybe my child is going to be that he and his. Maybe this first child, why wouldn't she expect that right off the bat? Why is she going to expect that it's going to be 8,000 years later or some 6,000 years later? There's some sense that she's expecting it right off the bat. What a disappointment it must have been when this firstborn child murders his brother. I guess he's not the one. And I guess it's not his brother either. Man, what a disappointment. But finally, finally, this he has arrived. That's the message of the Messiah. That's the message of this Christ, this name that's being assigned to this baby that's born is Messiah, is that message. He's the he. He's the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. What a delightful announcement this must have been for angels. Man, I'm just imagining the heavenly host. I'm imagining if this is Gabriel. I can't imagine why in the world they wouldn't have been around at the fall of man. Angels aren't subject to what we're subject to. They don't, they're not subject to the curse, so they're not going to die. They don't grow old. So th think about the heralds in that Judean field that night were around some 6,000 years earlier. If you follow a timeline that points back to a literal Adam and Eve, you'd follow about 6,000 years back human history, that angels, they were there when, when man fell. They were there when a promise was made that the offspring of you, or your offspring, is going to crush his offspring, the head of his offspring. And then they sit around for 6,000 years waiting for this thing to unfold. And it's this night that they get to cheer on a Judean hillside. He's here. The he and his has been born this night. This Messiah that was promised thousands of years ago has arrived. He's here. Finally, no more waiting. He's come to redeem fallen man. He's come to do what no one else could do by restoring you to a garden-like relationship with your creator. Man, I can imagine that would be really good news for a bunch of angels. Man, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. I can imagine, too, this visual I have of Eve and Mary doing like a high five. Maybe do something more contemporary. Do a fist bump with an explosion. They're blowing it up. Boom! He's here. Finally, he's here. He was promised to you, Eve, and now I'm carrying him. He's here. Man, unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a true Savior that will bring true peace between God and man, who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. The brilliance of this message, man, I've been thinking on the brilliance of this message, the birth of a cosmic Savior who is the promised Messiah. Okay, just think on that for a minute. The brilliance of the content alone shared by brilliant messengers, and I'm not talking like smart messengers. I'm talking about when they sh showed up, the sky lit up. The brilliance of the message combined with the brilliance of the messengers stand in stark contrast to the sign that we're going to consider next and the audience. I mean, seriously, it's almost like someone switched the script from that point on. 
Like the script was written, you know, and Luke, he wrote out the first half of it, and a big wind gust came up, and it blew, the second half of it blew away, and he just picked up another script, and he attached it to it. I thought about it like this. It's like going to a really good restaurant where they start with hors d'oeuvres, and they come out with these really chef-made hors d'oeuvres where they come and describe everything to you and how long stuff has been aged, you know, and how, long that, how old that cheddar has been aged and how long that steak sat and, and or the, those steak chunks or whatever that's part of that hors d'oeuvres. And then they have sprigs. If you have sprigs with hors d'oeuvres, you know you're really having some hors d'oeuvres. And you have, have swirls, little sauces and stuff. You have some really amazing hors d'oeuvres. And you have a little drink that's got a little umbrella in it. You're really getting it done right there. And then that's the first half of the meal. And then the second half of the meal, they bring out a Terry's cheeseburger with fries on paper plates. Like, what happened? Now, I still haven't had Terry's Burger, but I hear they're good. But you can appreciate the difference between the first half of the meal and the second half of the meal. The first half of the meal is brilliant. Brilliant names given on a brilliant night by brilliant messengers. And then there's the sign. Let's look at the sign. And this will be a sign for you. You will find... A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a cow's food trough. Paper plates, indeed. Man, let that hit you. It's a beautiful theme in Luke. If you don't enjoy the beauty of it, let me help you enjoy the beauty of it because this is the message in Luke that people have called the great reversal that God is doing, that Luke especially keyed on this great reversal where God does surprising things with unlikely people. Where all the systems and all the designs and all the ways of the world where the first are first and the last are last are turned on their edge. And the first is last and the last is first. It's a theme that shows a God who's full of surprises, sending his son, Savior Christ, Lord, as a child not born in a palace of gold, but rather in the shack behind the common inn, not even in the inn, in the shack behind it. Man, it makes me think, like born in a trailer down by the river. Let's really, really connect to what, what happened, what went down right here. In the shack behind the inn, a child laid not in a bed of cypress and acacia wood, but rather a cow trough made of scraps from the barn. Man, what does this sign tell us about God? This sign at least helps us get some insight into this Savior, Christ, and Lord. This sign should help us look for a Savior who is, in fact, a contrary king, contrary in all respects, one who heals the sick, one who feeds hungry. We should be looking for a Messiah who liberates people, not from oppression from Rome or some government, but liberates us from the oppression of something far more terrible and far more oppressing, bondage to sin and self We should look for a Lord who does the surprising thing like eating with tax collectors and sinners and calling them to repentance. We should look for a Lord, a Savior, a Savior Christ Lord who speaks to a Samaritan woman at a well. Takes time with a Samaritan and a woman at that. We should look for a Savior, Christ, Lord, who touches the sick and heals them. Like lepers, who actually touches the unclean and makes them clean and whole. Man, I like the looks of that kind of Savior. One who does the unlikely and the surprising by rising at supper. Taking off his outer garment. Wrapping a towel around himself. And washing common disciples feet man we ought to be looking for that kind of savior we should look for a savior christ lord who takes the place of sinners on a device made for criminals a torture device where they're tortured to death and one who dies willingly between two thieves 
That's the kind of Savior that we ought to be looking for. His earthly life began here in a common place, so we shouldn't be surprised that it ended there on a common hill called Golgotha. We've got a God who's given us a sign that's as shocking as the night sky must have been for those shepherds. If you really spend some time on the shock of it, it's got to leave you breathless. Lastly, this morning, we're going to consider the audience. Who this amazing, brilliant message, and then this common sign, who this good news was shared with. The passage tells us in verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. I'm going to call attention to some words, some common words that I want you to appreciate as I read this passage. And there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Shepherds? And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, shepherds, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Don't miss the thems and don't miss the yous. And don't miss it. This message, this wonderful message, and this sign, this contrary sign, was for simple, common folk. Given the import of the message, it seems like the role should have been reversed with the whole passage. I thought about rewriting the passage in a way that I really, if I were writing this story, here's how it would have gone down. Okay, ready? In those days, while shepherds were in their fields, tending to the sheep, oblivious to the really important stuff, an angel of the Lord appeared to Caesar Augustus, and he was sore afraid. If we're going to go by the world systems, that's the way it would have gone down, right? Important stuff happens with important people doing important things. And then there's the rest of us. They're just plodding along, eating, living, sleeping, and dying. <laughs> Try this rewrite. In those days, while the common folks were just plodding along, ignorant to world-shaking stuff, an angel of the Lord appeared to Quirinius in his court while he did important, powerful stuff like governing Syria. Man, just let that hit you just for a minute. But the thems and the yous tell us that this amazing news came to shepherds. What a peculiar choice of an audience. Shepherds for years have been portrayed as sort of the scum of the earth, the lowest of the low. That's not an accurate picture of what shepherds were or who they really were. Okay, there, there was some, some writing around the 5th century, some rabbinic literature that suggested that they were just truly despised, the scum of the earth. But if you look through the lens of the scripture, you see all over the scripture, Old Testament and New, shepherds are really highly regarded. Abraham was a shepherd for a period of time. Moses was a shepherd for a period of time. David was a shepherd turned king. It's not a despised position. Christ himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good kings in the history of Israel were described as being good shepherds to Israel. And in the New Testament, the pastoral role in the local church is described as a shepherding role. It's not a despised position. Shepherds were just common. Shepherds were just common men doing unnecessary job. Okay? Shepherds wouldn't have had the means to own enough property to support flocks. Okay? If they owned a few sheep, they might tend to their own sheep, but they also hired themselves out, likely to tend to other people's flocks. They likely had to have permission to graze other properties, and in the area around Bethlehem, it's likely that these particular shepherds, okay, this is really good, <laughs> these particular shepherds, we're likely tending, considering the, considering the proximity to Jerusalem, we're likely tending to sacrificial sheep. 
Oh, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere and making sense of why God might reveal himself or might share this, this story through these angels to this particular audience. It's a handful of these guys. We know it's more than one because there's plural shepherds. And I don't know how many might populate a hillside tending to sheep. I'm just going, I'm going to be real conservative and say less than 10. Okay, we're talking about a handful of common people on a Judean hillside that the angel appears with good news. It is indeed a peculiar choice. It is indeed a cheeseburger on paper plates. Let it hit you. Terry's burger. Crazy. But it's really poetic. And it's more than poetry. It's symmetry. It's beautiful, the choice of audience. Just a couple of brief thoughts of why shepherds. First, the bad news that came some six to 8,000 years earlier was especially agricultural. I told you I wanted you to have Genesis 3 and 4 on speed dial. Turn back over to Genesis chapter 3. You're, you're nearly done this morning, so I wanted to give you guys a map. You know, we're getting toward the end. This is the third point, and I'm nearly done, but I really don't want you to miss this because I think it's just delightful. It'll just make you smile if you get it. If, you, if you're not smiling, then you just didn't get it. All right, some people smile already. They may, may know where I'm going. All right, here's, here's the bad news. Okay, listen to what goes down. Okay, I already shared the consequences for the serpent. Okay, of the fall. Now, here's the consequences that were shared with Adam. Listen to the nature of the consequences that are shared with Adam, beginning in verse 17. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Okay, anybody that's ever done any farming or um, planting, you know that some people just have this unique thing, this green thumb. Clint Stevens is one of those guys. Clinton Kate can grow anything. I can't. Man, I, I'm killing all kind of stuff. Robert Bledsoe told his wife yesterday, and she wasn't even there, about all the, all the, all the plants that she's killed. She just punched him. It's pretty good. Yeah, it, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, right? You know what I'm talking about. He cursed the ground. The bad news was especially agrarian. Listen to what he says next. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Golly, that's bad news. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Ugh. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The bad news is especially agrarian. So it's fitting, I mean poetic fitting, that the good news comes to a farm. Man, you don't think a bunch of shepherds would have been well acquainted with the fall and the consequences of the fall? I can imagine a bunch of shepherds sitting out in the field, sitting on a rock, sitting around talking tonight. Got the shepherd's crook, you know, sitting right here. One's got it across his lap and said, man, Adam makes me so mad. Man, wolves took a couple of our sheep last night. Adam ruined it for all of us. Man, some of your sheep got in that poison weed last night, didn't they? Yeah, they died. A couple of my sheep got so fat, they lay down and they did what's called, they were cast they, a, a sheep can get so fat that they lay down and they roll over on their back and they're so fat they can't get back up and they die. Man, sheep would have had, they would have been well acquainted with the consequences of the fall. Daily doses of how dumb sheep are and how dangerous wolves are and how many predators there are out there. All because of Adam. Man, I can't imagine this news wasn't, didn't come to a better place on this hillside to a bunch of shepherds on a farm. There is some sense that this whole thing comes full circle in this Messiah. A couple of passages that I'll just share with you briefly that I really enjoyed seeing. One is in Isaiah 55. And this is prophetic passages about what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. Instead of the thorns shall come up cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up myrtle. 
Man, that's the great reversal. In fact, indeed, Amos chapter 9 verse, uh, chapter 9 verse 11 says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And skip down to verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. You know why the plowman overtakes the reaper? Because the reaper's hands are full harvesting. And there's a Messiah that's come and will come at this point that's prophesied that came in this person that was announced 2,000 years ago that will bring change that's so profound that the reaper's hands are too full and their bags are too hefty where they're going to be overcome by the plowman who's trying to plant the next crop. The harvest will be so plentiful. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Man, there are more grapes than seed. This Messiah will bring something so profound that those in the agricultural context can appreciate what will eventually come in this Messiah. It's also fitting that he'd send angels to these guys on a farm. It seems he's giving them notice. In some ways, he's saying, okay, if these were the shepherds that are tending to sacrificial lambs, hey, guys, you might ought to be working on your resume. (laughs) You might ought to be kind of thinking about what other things you might do for a living because this child that's been born is going to be the final sacrifice and he's going to put you out of business. If you're tending to sacrificial lambs, we won't need you anymore. And by the way, there won't even be such thing as the need of a shepherd because there won't be any peril eventually. After all, the lion will in fact lay with the lamb when this Savior and this Messiah finishes his work. Man, it turns out it's a burger and fries on a paper plate, but it's delicious. What does his choice of this audience, this peculiar choice, tell us about God? It tells us that his good news is for common folk. It tells us that his good news is for those like simple shepherds, those who respond most readily, who are unencumbered by power, and prestige, and money, and creature comforts. These are Luke's poor in the book of Luke. These are the poor that will inherit the kingdom. These are who this Savior came and died for. And my question to you this morning, are you unencumbered enough to see this thing that's happened that the Lord has made known to you? Are you? Are you unencumbered enough to enjoy this good news of this Savior that's been born? There's an invitation in this passage that comes from the multitude. I, I uh, enjoyed considering how this, this second part of their message unfolded. Where the multitude joins in and they say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. I enjoyed that this is an invitation from heaven. In some ways, what's happened here is they are expressing that glory is already in the highest. Glory is already in the heavens. And now peace is on earth, specifically in the person and the coming and eventual work of the child as they grow up and they live a sinless life and they make, he makes his way to the cross. This Savior Christ Lord is the meeting place where the glories of heaven meet. With peace on earth. I want you to see this second little excerpt, the second message from the heavenly host as an invitation to join heaven in glorifying God, given that peace has come in the arrival of this Savior Christ and Lord. Man, I want to invite you into that. I realize this morning that there are some of you that might be here just trying to figure out what is this this religious thing about? What is this faith thing about? What is this church thing about? Well, who's this, what is this Jesus thing about? I never want to assume that we don't have anyone among us that's not sort of searching that out. And my encouragement to you this morning is that see this as an invitation to join the heavenly host in giving God glory by enjoying the peace that comes through that son and his work.
There's a specific clause in here that I think is important. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. I'm thankful that it doesn't say peace with those who are really perfect fathers. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those who are great husbands. Mm, That would be terrible news for Ben McGraw. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those who are perfect mothers, perfect teachers, perfect employees, perfect kids. Does anybody enjoy that it doesn't say that? It says instead, among those with whom he's pleased. Does anybody want to know, well, how do we find his good pleasure? Here's how we find his good pleasure. By placing our faith in and enjoying this Christ that was announced that night, that was born that night, that since has lived and died and risen and is seated and reigning and ruling right now. You want to find God's good pleasure? That's the only way. You can't be good enough. You can't be nice enough. Man, I'm all for being good and nice. But we're talking about a holy God. Unless you're perfect at that, you need some other plan. And the good news is the good plan. He's provided a good plan. Place your faith and trust in this Christ, Savior, Lord. Then you'll find his good pleasure. Then you'll find an everlasting peace, a peace that's better than the peace of Augustus. A peace that's far better than the peace of the Roman Empire that was temporary, but eternal, lasting peace. Find God's good pleasure and peace. In the only place you can, in the only person you can, our Savior, Christ, and Lord. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that we have a chance to revisit an old story newly. I'm thankful that we have the chance to join some shepherds on a hillside and to be amazed at the content of a message and to be amazed, too, at the audience that you've chosen because I feel like we are especially common. Lord, I pray that you'll find us unencumbered. I pray that a pursuit of money or power or prestige, that those things won't occupy our, our desires and our hearts, but instead that we will find ourselves poor and broken and in need of this good news. Lord, I pray for those this morning who might be hearing this for the first time or hearing it hopefully with uh, some, some clarity of maybe making sense of who this Jesus is and what he's done and why this is such good news, Lord, I pray that they will respond in repentance and faith, that they will trust in this Christ or this Savior Christ, Lord, that they will find good pleasure from you and peace with you through that alone. God, I pray that that's happened this morning in this room in this very moment. Lord, we love you and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute the elements here in a moment. I want to share a passage with you, if I can, beforehand. It's in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's a fitting meal that we take every single week. We have the chance to revisit. I don't want to stay any further than three or four days away from this meal, either three or four days ago or three or four days coming. I think it's nicely placed as a weekly thing for us. And this passage in Luke, uh, fitting that we're reading from Luke, tells us about the Lord's Supper. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're a word circler, you may not be looking at the passage and that's fine, but maybe you think about this later. I circle the word until because there's some anticipation in that word. There's another one in here too, listen. I'll not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This thing that we take every week, this Lord's Supper that we take every week, has a portion of it where we're enjoying what he's already accomplished. We're enjoying the fact that he is, in fact, Savior, Christ, and Lord. 
Man, we're enjoying what was accomplished on that hill 2,000 years ago. We're enjoying an empty tomb together. As we take and eat and drink, we're enjoying this supper, what he's already accomplished from his first advent. But there's some anticipation to it as well. We're considering together. He's coming back. There's an until. And as we take and eat, we're anticipating his return where he's in fact going to bring this kingdom into its fullness. These things that we've hinted at and bumped into this morning, they will come fully when he returns. So let's distribute the elements and then we'll take and eat and drink.